Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. Filling in for John O'Brien, I'm Kendra Hanna. This episode of Speakers Forum centers around three very different experiences of childhood sexual abuse. However, all three guests consider the responsibility of caregivers to prevent abuse and the difficulty of demanding justice decades after the crime. Joan Knuckles Wilson is a lawyer and writer based in Anchorage, Alaska. Her 2021 memoir, The Book of Timothy, My Brother, the Devil, and Me, recounts her attempt to find justice for her brother, Tim Knuckles. Tim was abused by a Catholic priest during their childhood in Chicago. Joan writes about their shared childhood, her life in Anchorage, and finally, her travels to confront her brother's abuser in Rome. Tim Knuckles is a financial advisor based in Chicago. He's worked in finance for over 30 years. He decided to come forward with his story after reading about similar sexual abuse by Catholic priests in an expose reported by the Boston Globe. Erica Schickel is an author, memoirist, and voice actor. Her 2021 memoir, The Big Hurt, explores her experiences as a young girl coming of age in the 70s and 80s. Raised by two writers, she was sent to an East Coast boarding school after her parents' divorce. There, she started a relationship with a predatory teacher. That abuse ended with Schickel being punished and expelled from her preparatory high school. The way our culture confronts sexual abuse and AIDS survivors has gained increased media attention in recent years. But prevention and treatment measures are still far from adequate. According to the Centers for Disease Control, quote, child sexual abuse is a significant but preventable public health problem. Many children wait to report or never report child sexual abuse. About one in four girls and one in 13 boys experience child sexual abuse at some point in childhood. 91% of child sexual abuse is perpetrated by someone the child or child's family knows, unquote. This program was presented on January 13th, 2022 by the Elliott Bay Book Company. Please note, this episode contains discussion of sexual abuse in unedited language of an adult nature. I still remember, as if it was yesterday, the first day I walked into Elliott Bay Bookstore, Book Company, I'm sorry, and in Seattle, and it felt like coming home. It just, I'm like you, Erica, probably find great comfort in the presence of books. But I just want to say that introduction to the, the very same thing for me felt like coming home. Um, as a resident of Anchorage, uh, we, we kind of consider ourselves Seattleites just a little bit. We, we travel through your city quite a bit to come home. Um, my other connections, uh, the, one of the opening scenes when Tim first told me what happened in his story, I was working at the Anchorage office of the Seattle-based firm Davis Wright Tremaine, which where I started as a baby lawyer and met some wonderful people that are mentors and also discussed in that book. I think one of them uh, may be on, the f- on this call. Uh, she and I worked HIPAA law for, for a long time. And then I also saw the name of my um, co-counsel in the Hubbard Board dentist case, Eric Senta, who's another wonderful writer, hopefully telling that story. And last, the editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper, uh, the Resurrection Banner, is attending. So that's my Seattle connection. Erica, do, do you have any stories have, to tell? I have a bunch of Seattle connections. Okay. I mean, first of all, my people settled Seattle uh, when uh-huh. began the first Methodist church and school in, in Seattle um, many years ago. Um, but more recently, <clears throat> I actually began the Big Hurt in Seattle. Uh, when I got a fellowship at Hedgebrook, which is an amazing uh, writing retreat for women um, in, in, on uh, Whidbey Island. 
And uh, yeah, that's where I met the wonderful local favorite, Claire Dieterer, who um, not only blurbed my book, but was really, we really bonded on Whidbey Island. And um, she ended up being a real sounding board for me as I wrote this book. And I had two fellowships out there. Um, So I really owe them a big, a big nod and a thank you. Um, Yeah, that's my CIA. Well, I think I'll sign up for that for my next book. It sounds really good. Yeah. Went there, went there twice. Well, thank you, audience. Um, I think you're going to see some really interesting parallels between. I'm going to call it Tim's story and Erica's story. I'm a little bit of a fly on the wall, even though I'm impacted to some degree as well. But I, I'd, I'd like to start you back to the uh, the time that really allowed. The what happened to Tim and that happened to Erica, I think, propagate just the level of did our parents really know what was what was happening to us? Um, I, in order to make this a, a bit of a shorter story for you, I'm going to be jumping back and forth a little bit, and I, I hope I, I get the order right. But if you see me pause, I'm following numbers in my in my writing. Um, but let me start here. What I fear the most today are a failure of words and the resulting inability to justify my choices. Will a future reader or fault finder think there is a critical disconnect between subject me and object, revenge for Tim? For if anyone were to think my brother was not worth what has amounted to struggle after struggle over 10 years of my life, I would have done Tim a great injustice. 10 times 10 years, that is its worth. So as you see, I've only just begun. My Tim was born breach on the last day of January, 1966, during a cold spell that sunk Chicago temperatures to well below zero for one week straight. From what my mother told me, however, my relationship with Tim began long before his birth on those frigid days. When his hands and feet punctuated our mother's womb, she said she told me, her feeding child, he's reaching toward you, Joan Mary, his Irish twin. Once I finished drinking and my sucking sounds were replaced with rhythmic breath, she would remind me we rested together, my brother and me, in double-decker slumber. When Tim did finally come home from the hospital, I heard we shared a crib for afternoon naps and slept together head to toe. My hand instantly wrapped around the arch of his foot like an involuntary reflex. Nearly every time, mom said. From his birth, my mother told Tim, be comforted, dear one. Your sister can't let you go. We lived then. When Tim was just one and a half and I was pushing three, I stood by the tire swing hanging low to the ground from a single Dutch elm on our Mead Avenue front lawn. There, Tim made his way through the tall grass that was in need of a cutting. With each movement, the blades engulfed his lower body. When he reached me, he grabbed onto my legs and tried to hang on. I bent down to lift him up but fell on top of him instead. We rolled together on the lawn. When the translucent whisk of his hair tickled my nose, I let out a child's giggle. He smelled like a honey-made graham cracker 
and became my first memory. In 1969, our family moved to the suburbs of Chicago. Tim and I filled our days with constant patrols for salamanders and chameleons that lived in our basement window wells and any other place where flood floodplain waters in this new town built on top of a one-time cornfield still might gather. When we found our wiggling friends, we carried them to the ripple of a creek, which we insisted on calling the big river behind our home. On the way back for lunch or supper, we always stopped to feed carrots to the neighbor's horses. It was there, I told Tim, the first person ever. I loved the country much more than the city. And he replied, I know country mouse, I know. Was it just us? With six other siblings, that was impossible. Nonetheless, it's, times, it's Tim who stands out in my memory, who was always by my side, until he wasn't. Are you ready? Because I'm still not, not yet. In Tim's 13th and 14th birthdays, Ormache's visits came with greater frequency. They must have been more difficult for Tim to predict because even if dad were spending the night at the firehouse, Ormache would still show up for dinner. He didn't have to ask. Ours was an open door. He was even welcomed the five days before payday when grocery shopping was off limits and mom scavenged the cup cabinets for something nutritious to feed us. On one such night, when dad must have been on the fire, at the firehouse, JB sat in an armless chair upholstered in the yellow and brown checks of our country-themed kitchen. He leaned forward and rested his left elbow against our sunflower yellow countertop. Mom stood at the kitchen sink washing dishes in scalding hot water with palm oil of soap no gloves. She regularly looked out the window over the sink to the gangway between ours and the Ankoviak's house, but turned back whenever he spoke. So Mary, I was wondering. I was her official dish dryer that night and turned toward him as well. Perhaps my recollection has been influenced by reality, for no one other than John Wayne Gacy, who at the time happened to live about two miles away, looked better to play the part of child predator than Ormache did. In 1981, JB was 42 years old. He was of European stock, just shy of six feet tall, and I expect around 220 pounds. His black priestly garb slimmed him, but his stomach was soft. So were his hands, not a callus in sight. Despite that, his skin had the bronze color of a working man's. His relatively full head of dark brown hair was parted at the far left and swept over his wide forehead. His gold-tinted aviator eyeglasses cut his thick sideburns in two. The lemon yellow kitchen curtains, even brighter than the counterplots, countertop, 
reflected in those eyeglasses. He sat comfortably slumped in the shape of a letter C and churned in such a way he could easily monitor any movements, perhaps to him, invitations emanating from my brother's closed bedroom door just down the hall. I don't recall what he said next, but I know, have no doubt he spoke in his animated sing-song voice and that he spoke of God and he made my mother proud. At a certain point, after the dishes were dried, mom would have noticed that father's coffee cup was half empty and would have filled it with the decaf drip remaining in the percolator. Before sitting at the kitchen table to join him, I know she excused me. And before heading upstairs that day to finish my homework, I knew for sure I had to talk to Tim. Something about that April day had been bothering me and I thought he might understand. I opened his door quickly after just one knock. I don't even think he said, come in. I noticed his lights were off, so I switched them back on. At their first flash, I saw Tim sitting on top of his comforter, but braced like he was ready to leap off it. He had the look of a scared snowshoe hare. He was dressed still in his Notre Dame High School junior varsity basketball shorts and jersey. Although he was still a couple years shy of his growth spurt, he was muscular. I was prone to challenge him to arm wrestles. I would always lose. Whoa, calm down. It's just me, Timmy, I remember saying. I laughed a bit, and then I saw him sigh. Even though I could have caught him doing all manner of things that 13-year-old boys must do, he seemed relieved it was me. He gave a casual lift to his chin and motioned his hand for me to come farther inside. I'm not sure why, but I shut the door behind me. Relief again crossed his face. Tim put another pillow behind his back and sat up straight. He leaned against his helm-shaped headboard and the stormy ocean blue wall behind it. He raised his knees. White tube socks with yellow stripes rode halfway down his calves. Questioning my choice and uncertain of his interest, I stammered, uh, um, sorry to bother you. I sounded a bit like a waitress trying to close a tab before the end of her shift. Uh, but I came here because I was wondering if you remember what today was. He gave a blank stare that said no. It was eight years ago today, April 17th, that we left Crystal Lake and moved back to Chicago. Eight years to the day, huh? Yep. How do you remember things like that, he asked. He sounded interested. Did I tell him, name the date, Papa George's death, then Aunt Pat's? I record every time we lose someone. Because it was the day Cha went missing. This was a reference to my Siamese cat. He tilted his head puzzled. Uh, it's not like we didn't find her, Joan. It was Tim who did. He heard her in the back of the moving van and brought her to me once we reached the city. I know, but it wasn't my choice to leave her behind. I tried to explain mom and dad got tired of looking for her and we just had to go. And I added, it was my job to keep her safe. I was seven. He seemed resigned to help. Got it, Joan, but she was found and she's here, I bet, right on your bed. It all worked out fine. Next, he changed the subject. Uh, so Tim asked in a voice 
I now recognize as tensive. Is he gone yet? Nah, he's still in the kitchen talking to Ma. I think it'll be soon, though. I heard him say he had 6 a.m. mass tomorrow. Tim turned to his nightstand and rustled through his top drawer. Then do me a favor. Stay here a while, okay? He pulled out a deck of cards. I got an idea. To celebrate our eighth anniversary here and Shaw being safe, let's say we play Crazy Eights. Only after that front door was deadbolted with Ormache outside of it, did our game finally end? These are the things I take stock of now. Recording what I've lost. When he was alone and ravaged. Don't think we had it beat. When he thought no one was on his side. Stand at the fence and rattle the lock gate. I wish I could have told him. Scream and then scream louder. I'm here. I see you. And we will bring this to an end. Why I didn't. My only explanation is my hand slipped. That's the only reason I would ever let him go. Thank you. Wow. That's a really beautiful and profound passage. I mean, I just want to get right to talking about your book. I feel a little sheepish to read, but... Um, Please do. Please I, read. I chose something really short and I cut it down. So it's only about five minutes okay. long. Um, but you, I guess we've chosen sort of ground zero scenes mm -hmm. from our books. And this is certainly the one from, one from mine. Um, and just to set it up, it's the spring of my senior year. You know, I have been sent to this boarding school and I sort of found myself over the course of those four years, I was sort of a success. I had gone from being a very sort of bad, messed up girl to being sort of one of a really good student and upstanding member of the community. Um, and uh, this, these two teachers, Henry was the music teacher, his wife, Elaine was my French teacher and they were actually really good friends of mine prior to the assault, or if we're going to call it that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that, and just also, so you know that, I, you know, um, if that, this was not my first rodeo as a girl um, in the 70s and 80s. Henry was waiting for me in the doorway of the dining hall after lunch. I was wondering if you'd like to go for a bike ride after classes. I'd love to. He laughed at my enthusiasm and I blushed. I met him outside the gatehouse, and we pushed off down Water Street on our bikes, past the library and the golf course towards Highway 2. The day was bright and warm. We rode wordlessly down Green River Road. We had come out this way three weeks earlier with Eileen before the photo shoot. I didn't ask why she wasn't with us today. Eileen and I had ridden abreast that day, chatting and laughing while Henry quietly cycled behind us. The buds were just opening then, but now spring was fully upon us. The trees had leafed out and were full of grackles. The green river, which was really a stream, meandered sweetly alongside the road, hemmed in by a dilapidated split rail fence. Wads of chickadees startled up from its banks and darted across the road in front of us. We rode slowly. I didn't want to do or say anything that might break the spell of this magical afternoon alone with Henry. 
All too soon, we reached the gas station at Five Corners, the halfway point of our 10-mile loop. Luckily, the second half of the ride was the toughest and the slowest. Cold Spring Road had a long, steep uphill grade, and we both stood on our pedals to pump. Spring seemed to turn to summer as we chuffed and sweated, and the roadside scenery, the Queen Anne's lace and buttercups, went slowly, slowly past. When we finally topped the hill, we pulled up alongside a fence to catch our breath. The splintery old rails held back a small herd of Holsteins that chewed, oblivious to the sweeping view of the valley below. When our, when our breathing finally slowed, Henry broke the silence. I am in torment, Erica. I looked at him, and even though his transition lenses had darkened way down, I could read trouble in his eyes. What's wrong? He looked at me beseechingly. I haven't been able to eat. I can't sleep. I can't do anything but think about you. I held very still so as not to interrupt him. I watch you in the dining hall. I see you on the path between classes and every time my heart stops. I gripped the handlebars of my bike to steady myself. Am I shocking you? Tell me to shut up. No. I'm telling you that I'm in love with you. This wasn't what I expected. Had I heard him right? I never dreamed that my schoolgirl crush on my teacher would be answered. He was waiting for my next line and I grappled for it. I had played this scene on stage. I knew my line was, I love you too. But the words caught in my throat. Instead I said, but what about Eileen? Oh, Eileen is not who you think she is, nor is our relationship. What do you mean? Erica, we're not actually married. He pulled off his bike glove that showed, and showed me his fancy wedding ring. We had these made so we could work at Buxton as a couple. This ring is meaningless. Do you understand what I am saying? I'm saying I am free to love you, and I am deeply in love with you. As a child of divorce, I understood that marriage was simply an outfit that people wore until they grew out of it. But I never imagined that people would lie about being married in the first place. Henry pulled off his glasses and there were his eyes brimming with emotion. Do you have any feelings for me? My crush on him was still new. I had barely mapped its area. And now suddenly it was no longer a crush, but a reciprocated love? Did I love him? I didn't know him. I didn't know myself either. All I understood was that I was being offered something extraordinary, a story. Here was a fork in my road. One way led, led back to the safety of the dorm, the other toward romantic adventure. If I were to be a heroine in my own life story, then how could I refuse this offer? Besides, I, I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Yes, I love you. Henry reached across the bikes that were between us and took my hand in his. I thought for a moment he might press it up against his hard on as boys usually did. But Henry simply brought my hand to his lips and kissed it tenderly like Omar Sharif, his brown eyes bottomless and lash weighted. As he bent his head to my hand, the sunlight brought out the chestnut in his hair and revealed a bit of thinning at the crown. We must speak of this to no one, he said, before we got on our bikes and rode back to school. 
The next day I received a letter. It was written on thick cream colored stationery and was postmarked from Bennington College where he worked. There was no return address. It was from Henry speaking of his elation, our twin souls of the lovelessness of his union with Eileen and his conviction that we were meant to be together. I know the world will judge us. Me, the 31 year old predator, you the 18 year old victim, he wrote but you and I are beyond time, age, or definition. Love is only available to those with the courage to grab it. Would we cave into those who, whose bankrupt morals would keep two people who love each other from touching each other? Another letter arrived the next day. Our love occupies a space and time beyond my wildest imaginings. Now that this has happened, I can never return to what was. Can you? The next day, uh, CJ, who is acting as our pigeon, as a friend in the book, passed me two letters from Henry, one in the morning, the other in the afternoon. I am born anew. You came to me in a vision. I looked up and there you were. We gazed at each other as we do. And I knew, I knew for the first time that you and I truly are. My 18 year old self, could not see how corny and cliche his letters were, how vague, histrionic, and grandiose he was. I thought this was how true love was supposed to be talked about. Anyone who would put me on that kind of pedestal deserved, at a minimum, at least a roll in the hay. I knew what to do next. I met Henry after classes at the bottom of Pine Alley, near the gatehouse and we took off into the woods, looking for a safe place to spread out the blanket he had brought. I wondered if we would be consummating our love on Buxton land or Clark art land. Henry unfolded the blanket and patted it down for me. It was more than Keith had done on the river, more consideration than Jonas had ever shown me. We disrobed and stood in front of each other. His body was lean, pale, and elegant. His cock, heavy with blood, pointed to four o'clock. When I was underneath him, I realized too late that what I actually wanted was to be with Henry in the white bed in the middle of his and Eileen's apartment. I didn't want another a woodland fuck. I wanted to be Eileen, to have her relationship, her artistic alliance and her bohemian life. It was over quickly. I remember it vaguely as being goose bumpy technical sex, but I don't remember much else about it. All I do remember was his smell because he doused himself in cologne. And to this day, a whiff of Lagerfeld will yank me back to the spring of 1982 when I fucked the music teacher in the woods and signed myself up for my own downfall. So, Two very different, different experiences, two very different, well, three very different lives, um, two very different accountings of similar things. Um, I think the first question I really want to ask you, Joan, because this is your first book and it's such a, it's such a beautiful book and it's so deftly written. And, you know, I, I want to know, did the book come to you after you learned about what happened to your brother or did you know long before that, that you were a writer in search of a story? 
Um, good question. I don't think I've been asked that one. The, the truth is I was a writer since I was a little girl. I don't know if you were too, Erica. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the audience doesn't know this, but we share a lot in common. New York, Chicago, both 1964 babies. Yeah. Um, Melissa Gilbert was born our year too. And I kind of thought I always write the Laura Ingalls Wilder story of Chicago. And I was going to write a love story to my family. I was huge on Laura Ingalls Wilder as a kid. <laughs> and Michael Landon, I got to tell you, I did oh, have yeah. a crush on him. Yeah. Um, and I, so, you know, you went the writer's path. I, I, I think if I, if, you know, what, what makes you, your parents made you in part. Yes. Mine was like, get a job, get a trade. And for me, law became my trade. So mm-hmm. I always thought I'm, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to do this. And it's, it was really hard to begin my legal career and uh-huh. write at the same time. Um, but when I began that legal career, I was a baby lawyer when Tim called and uh, told mm-hmm. me what happened to him, even though all those childhood memories came back. And long story of getting through, you know, a told criminal statute of limitations and um, I mean, an expired one and then a civil lawsuit and then a settlement that the church, I could see how the church valued Tim. It was, you know, minimally. And our, his goal, Tim, let me know if I'm speaking for you, but your goal was to actually help people not have this happen to other children. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that was, uh, that was my only goal. Yeah, to, uh, I mean, oh, go ahead. It's just that uh, there was no possible way that he could, uh, let alone touch a child, look at a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when the lawsuit uh, didn't do much and, you know, you didn't get to call him to the square, I, th- I think we talked about telling your story. And I think. I can, I, I can tell your story, Tim. I, mean, I, I, I don't know if that fits your recollection. Did that, did that, yeah. Tim, when, when she said that to you, I mean, is, was that an idea that appealed to you or did it feel dangerous and scary? Um, to be honest, I don't know if I really put much thought into it. Um, I still feel compelled to um, trust myself as being a a helper. Mm -hmm. Um, And if my, what happened to me, you know, my trauma can find a way and assist somebody uh, young or old. um, And, uh, I think that's probably where my my brain sort of wrapped around it. Like, uh, there's no reason to hide. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's shameful when you're when you're young. Uh, you know, I, I definitely went through some uh, uh, pretty traumatic uh, events. Uh, you know, from you know, my determination to destroy myself with drugs and alcohol and mm-hmm. guns and, uh, you know, seedy people and, um, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, you, you get lucky, you find uh, 
an incredible woman and uh, you get married you you know find your place in in, in your in your uh, in your work mm-hmm. and you know I started loving my, my job again and uh, my two boys came along and yeah, yeah. It ends up being a happy, a happy ending. So. <laughs> but while you're you're doing all that, I, I'm living. You know, girl who can't let go of responsibility. I made a promise to Tim. I I, I better learn how to tell this story. And then, of course, came that wait. I have to learn how to write, <laughs> which yeah. meant I had to read, right? And and um, long story. Finally realized I couldn't tell my brother's story. I had to tell. I, I tried. I my tried story. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tried yeah. to write, um, but I, I gave up within a few weeks. <laughs> you, know, it's, so. you know, Joan and I were going to, uh, you know, sort of. I thought it was right. just going to be. I thought it was just going to be sort of just a therapeutic way mm-hmm. of, you know, getting through this as a family. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, she she took it in another route, and I stopped. <laughs> and hopefully how, got to live your life a little. But, how yeah. long did it did it take you? I mean, the, the events in the story are all happened around the, in the early 2000s. Um, and so here we are in 2022. Yeah. Um, how long did it take for you to come around to telling this story, Timothy, and then for you to synthesize it synthesize your own experience and and also live the events of this book which are really quite extraordinary um you know you going to rome and tracking this guy down um but how, how how did that work for you like how did you figure out how to do it and how long did it take to get this all on the page well, Tim, how long did it take you to come forward from 13 to 32? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I was mm-hmm. like beginning my early 30s, I believe. Yeah. And that's when you, your, your wife was pregnant with your son, and mm-hmm. that created a lot of surface and memories. Yeah, yeah, there, that, yeah. there was a, an urgency in, in my brain where, you know, I, I knew that uh, I, there's no way I would be a good father if I didn't make sure uh, I didn't get this guy away from kids. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then, you know, I probably started actively trying to write it in 2008. You know, the lawsuit took a few years in there, too. And then I realized I needed a, to learn to write. So then I went and got my master's of fine arts. That was, what, four years of my life. And I know there's a whole theory. Are MFAs good or not good? My MFA was great. I met wonderful, wonderful teachers worth every single penny I paid. Mm -hmm. And um, then I finished my master's thesis and people said, oh, this is ready to go and start shopping it. And that's when I realized it wasn't Joan's complete story because Joan doesn't put a bow on something. You know, she goes out and tries to kill people. So that's when I realized I had to go to Rome. And then it took the writing process and really, you know, finding a publisher that would believe in telling a story of clergy sex abuse. Cause it doesn't sound like a sexy topic to a lot of people. Did you, well, you go ahead. Did you read answer. a lot of other, but are there other oh, books? Yeah. What is the, the, the body of literature around this and, and who was inspirational to you as yeah. you were trying to figure out how to tell the story? Well, I stayed away. I don't know if you did the same. I stayed away from a lot of direct subject 
you know, clergy mm-hmm. sex abuse because mm-hmm. I didn't want their stories to influence my story. But I just fell in love with beautiful storytellers like Abigail Thomas, Beverly D'Onofrio, um, Judith Barrington, a number of uh, wonderful Alaska writers, Ava mm-hmm. Salaitis, Sherry Simpson, mm-hmm. and Ernestine Hayes. I can just give a list. Yeah. <laughs> Karen, I should stop here. Um, I finally kind of found, oh, here's the mo- mode I want to take. Um, this was after Rome. It, I think it was Beverly D'Onofrio's Looking for Mary when she went to Croatia to um, on a spiritual pilgrimage for the Virgin Mary after her s- story of, you know, getting pregnant in high school. And, and I'm like, I like this idea of using a trip as mm-hmm. a baseline for a story. So then that helped me shape and really bring 30 years, of, if not more, mm-hmm. 40 years of history into it. Can mm-hmm. I ask how long your story took? <laughs> well, um, the events took place in 1982 and, uh, and I didn't, I, I, you know, I, I lived with, with it as anecdote for many years until 2008. And I was gonna, I had written this first book. I was a memoirist. Mm -hmm. It was time to write another one. And I had always wanted to tell the story of this crazy Bohemian high school I'd gone to. And I, I really imagined it as another humor book and it would all be just, you know, fun and antics and kids running around in the woods and pranking each other and, you know, and then there was this the small problem of that I was seduced by a teacher and kicked out right before graduation. So I didn't have a happy ending. And I was like, how am I going to write the end? I mean, I was so compartmentalized away from it. And then this friend of mine, CJ, who the book is dedicated to, um, called me out of the blue. It was the dawn of Facebook and mm-hmm. people were finding each other again who had been lost to time. And CJ found me and said, Erica, you, you, do you know what happened to you in high school? And I really didn't. I really hadn't thought about it. And, um, and he made me think about it. And at the time, I had two daughters who were around the ages I was mm-hmm. when these events were happening. And that was like you, Tim. I mean, you know, triggered by your kids. And just I came to see that I needed to understand the story if I was going to be a good parent to these kids, you know, I needed to understand my own story. So I started writing it in 2008 and I published it in 2021. So, um, that's about yeah, when I started, <laughs> we both started the long, same long time. time. Yeah. yeah. It, when it was very hard to write because yeah. a, because events were still occurring as I was writing, um, and then the second part of this story came up with this other man in middle age and the end of my marriage and all of that. And, I, and as I was living that very absorbing, strange thing, I realized that I had, was replicating what had happened to me in high school, that I, in my resistance to tell this true story of what had happened, my, I subconsciously set it up and did it all over again. Um, And it was that affair that really forced me to confront my own damage. Was it the ostracism you faced the second time when your marriage fell apart that made you link that or um, Uh, had you already kind of figured it out? No, I mean, I no, I was well into the affair. And then I had the sort of no duh moment. Uh Um, But you know, when I looked at it, you know, older, pedagogic, 
man, inappropriate relationship for a number of reasons. Um, and he was a writer. He was very edible. My father is a writer. They, you know, big mid-century careers, male careers, all of that stuff. I mean, there were so many forces at work in that relationship. But um, yeah, I, I, it took a long time to process and you can't write from a place mm-hmm. of, of, of raw emotion. Right. Um, one of the things I wanted to really compare notes with you guys about, and I mean, I found this so moving, you know, the end of your book is so beautifully done. Um, and you bring, you tie so many strands together in such a, just a great way. Um, you know, but one of the things that sort of left sort of, open and dangling is, you know, A, your own faith, your participation in, in the church and the Catholic church, um, but the, which attaches to just sort of a larger question of like, of, of forgiveness and closure. And I know that for me, that's something that I have really struggled with in my story. I have never gotten an apology or real acknowledgement from the school. Schools being very similar to the Catholic church Mm -hmm. in that they're very insular. They pass the trash. They protect their own. Passing the trash is the term used for when like a priest just gets sent off to another church or a teacher gets sent off to another school and there's no record of it, of what happened or the accusations or anything. So how, how, where are you with that? Um, And I mean, do you think that they, have you found forgiveness? Both of you, I'd like to know. Want me to go first? Do you want to go, Tim? Doesn't matter. Okay. Tim's got like Tim's cut, will cut to the quick, so I'll do my 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 rambling meander, which is um, as right before Tim told me what happened to him, I had a my marriage fell apart, but I was this good Catholic girl, and that wasn't supposed to happen, and it really cut me to the quick. Even though it was a terrible terrible marriage, I wish this man well, but he should have not have been my husband. Um, but that became the kind of the door for me to return to Catholicism. And I developed a very um, good relationship with a spiritual mentor, a lovely Jesuit priest who I've checked his record back and forth. Uh, you know, he's, he's good. So I, I was going to mass. I was, I felt I had a close connection to God and um, I, I, when Tim said what happened, of course, I knew all the stories in Boston, but it's like a lot of members of the lady, if it doesn't impact you directly, you kind of put up blinders. And I've noticed that in the response of some of my friends who stay in the church. Um, But I would say, you know, a lot of the book is what's left of my faith. And um, I made a decision in the Vatican, a painful decision that I can't stay. Mm -hmm. And I still long for it. I, I, you know, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know if it's the ritual. I don't, I think it's, I always say it's my relationship with the angry Jesus. I really like the guy who went in there and overturned the table. I just feel a real affinity for him. Mm-hmm. And when you're born Catholic, um, if you like the ritual and everything, it's really hard to go somewhere else, mm-hmm. at least for me. Cause I love this. I loved that we're linked from people in the first century. 
-hmm. being a writer and, you know, I just Mm -hmm. like walking into a room that felt like warmth. But even since the story has come out and hearing Tim speak and, you know, some events that happen on, on the tour, I, it's even hard for me to go in for alone for those moments of, of silence. So I'm suffering. I, I, I love what I loved about it and really hate what I hate about it. Yeah. Um, so I kind of call myself, I'm hanging on the windowsill, you know, maybe someone will grab me, bring me back in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Tim wants that. Uh, and we can talk forgiveness of parents, but um, I don't know if you have thoughts about, about the church first, Tim. I mean, forgiveness is, uh, well, for one, you have to ask for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was never asked for. Mm-hmm. I, I did receive a, a, a letter uh, from uh, someone at the uh, uh, Passionist, um, you know, in regards to even the uh, archdiocese, um, but they spelt my name wrong. Oh, um, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so right there it, it <laughs> that's sort of like the icing on the cake when it when it comes to uh, my relationship with um, the the cult. I, I I don't see them as anything. I don't see it as a, a structured religion. I see it as a uh, um, a criminal outfit. Uh, it's the way I look at it. I, I think they're uh, evil to the core. Um, from, you know, I, I even say, you know, the devil, mm-hmm. if there is a Satan, Satan is above, <laughs> higher than the, the church, yeah. uh, in my mind. Um, uh, Joan has a series of letters at the end of the book, and then she has your letter. And I mean, I just, it was so wonderful to read, I have to say, you know, because it's so, you know, it's just all, it it really is like, it just encapsulates all of the anger that, you know, the reader (laughs) is feeling and that finally somebody just needs to say that, you know, it's the best part of the book. Yeah. It was was a really good, people uh, should buy it just for that. Just to hear (laughs) a fantastic (laughs) letter. It really is. I mean, there's many great things, Mm -hmm. but. Well, that, that letter was written in blood. I could tell you that. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that that is extremely uh, true, and uh, mm-hmm. God help him if he. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if God would help him. <laughs> uh, I know our our time is kind of. Um, yeah, I, I want to hear from people, but I I I do have a question I want to ask of all of us, which is we talked about forgiveness of the entities. What about our parents? Yeah, I was just actually going to ask that. Do you want to go first, Eric? Yeah. Well, my parents, you know. My parents are both dead and they and died so before, yeah. Yeah, before they yeah. died before the book was finished. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a very troubled relationship with my mother my whole life. We were estranged for most of my life. And some of the reasons for that are revealed in the book, which is that she too was seduced by a teacher in college and had an enormously destructive, uh, sexually deviant uh, ongoing affair with him and his wife um, that totally screwed her up and made her into the damaged mother that raised me. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I do have forgiveness for her. I mean, I have deep empathy for her now. 
And it helps me to understand how she was able to groom me to the extent that she did for the world of predatory men. Um, my father, I was much closer to, and I really confronted him several times. I mean, we had dinners together all the time. I mean, we were very close and we both lived in Los Angeles towards the end of his life for about the third, last 30 years mm -hmm. of his life. So um, he was very, uh, always interested in my work and my book and supportive, but also never understood what the hell I was writing about. He didn't understand why I couldn't just get over what happened to me in high school. And he thought I should, you know, so I forgive him. I love him. He, they both did the best they could. It was, they did a fairly shitty job, <laughs> you know, of keeping me safe, but you know, yeah. it was the seventies. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you. Uh, um, my parents, both my parents, read the read a pretty solid draft of everything. Mm -hmm. My mother read it, and she said read it in two nights, and she loved it. And she, but then the one thing she said is, "I sure hope your marriage to Richard is okay." Like the most, the, the most important thing she wanted to make sure is my current marriage. Right. But, and my dad. Um, spent his last years really, I'd say his last 10 years dying. He was very mm -hmm. ill. And part of the reason he was dying is, or he gave up is he realized he had repudiated his son at 16 when his mm -hmm. son tried to tell him what happened. And he said, don't say that. And when he took cognizance of that, it, it slowly, slowly killed him. Um, yeah. He read the book he was good. The, the The kind thing I think about him is that there was one part of the story that he disagreed with when he said something homophobic. And he said, I would never say something like that. And he did, but it was after Ellen, you know, and, and his mm -hmm. heart had changed. So yeah. I, I really love that he changed like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, but losing both my parents made it really easy to forgive him because I didn't for a long, long time because how could I, as a child, know it was wrong and not them, you yeah. know? Uh, but Tim, you, when did you forgive him? I, I, I know you did. I mean, right all, all, they, all they had to do is ask. Yeah. You know? And did they ask? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Shall we take, there's a question. Sure. Oh, well, we sort of answered that one. Um, Linda asking, how did the family react to this, your parents and other siblings? So I don't know. Is there anything more uh, we want to say about that? Well, you know, I, I, I kind of make it seem in our book, like it was just Tim and me, but we have five more sisters Yeah, you <laughs> and, um, I'd say they were all extremely supportive of Tim, um, most of us are kind of fighting people, you know, uh, my sister's a Chicago police officer. I'm a prosecutor. Tim's a tough guy. A, a lot of us considered murder as a, as a reasonable choice. Mm -hmm. um, I like that. Mm -hmm. I think it got to the stage in writing that people just wanted me to be done. Like I was re-injuring people mm -hmm. taking so long. And yeah. I really, I, I know I did. I, I know I re-injured people, mm. including the other boys. Um, and I hope I can be forgiven for that. Do you have any sense that the other boys are aware of your book or have read your book? I know that the, 
um, father and sister of one of the boys was at our book launch. Mm. And I don't think the boy would be able to read it. Um, mm. I think it would be really, really hard on him. I think the one that's in denial will never read it. One is dead. Mm -hmm. And then the others, I haven't heard from them yet. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Tim's heard from anyone. I like the, the people I've heard from are, are not Ormache's victims, but people who, you know, call me to the side and get really quiet yeah. and say this happened to me. Yeah. Um, do you anticipate his death? Do you see freedom in the eventual end of this monstrous yeah. man who had obviously has no soul? What do you, do you see that as a, a release from something? Uh, two days ago, uh, Tim, I like your answer, but two days ago I texted Tim cause I had this, um, someone was trying to call me from Italy oh. and there is a part in the book where Tim was getting calls from Louisville, which is where the priest was removed to before mm. Tim came forward. And I was afraid to return the call. Uh, I eventually did. And it was the owner of the hotel Lancelot, this beautiful 93 year old woman who's featured in the story because that mm -hmm. hotel became a sanctuary. And she said to me, um, when are you coming back to Rome? And I said, Oh, a couple years. And she, when she told me her age, I realized I have to come back sooner. Mm -hmm. So I plan on delivering a handwritten copy to that priest. I hope he lives one more year for me yeah. to do that. Yeah. yeah. I wish him a good, healthy year. <laughs> um, uh, Tim, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but. Um, I don't see his death being very eventful. Yeah. Um, okay. If uh, obviously uh, no, I'll leave it there. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll leave it there. Um, last question: Somebody, Maureen, is asking. Don't you think JB groomed your parents like the boys because of their deep faith? I think what she's asking was, was it, is, is, was it the faith that allowed for the grooming that it was the parent that your parents faith blinded them to what was happening? Yeah, I think um, I, I, I'm interested in kind of Henry's story. If he was a repeat offender or if you were your only, you were his only person. I don't in know. I don't know. But I will say with these priests, um, including like, like looking at what they've done to the Alaska native people, which breaks my heart. Yeah. Um, that uh, they are sociopaths and yeah. they found their way in. And for the priest to um, assault, raped my brother, um, they, he needed a key and the key was my parents and yeah. he knew how to play them. Yeah, um, it's not complete absolution, because I, I think all three of us know as soon as you fall in love with your child, when they come in your arms, that protective, you know, bear, mama bear, papa bear spirit is there. And I don't know how it disappeared. Yeah, but um, I, I certainly believe he used every tool he could. I mean, the fact that he could just come over to our house 
when we had no money to feed all of us, you know, yeah. and, and eat from our table. Um, we, I mean, we were ch- children of firefighters. We weren't destitute, mm. but there were seven yeah. of us. That's a lot, yeah. a lot of people around the table. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he, he, he groomed them mm-hmm. and the other families and the, uh, to some degrees, the teachers, I don't Did Henry have a very charismatic personality? Cause that's what Ormache did. He had this kind of narcissistic, you know, yeah. into my circle. Yes, he was, he was the maestro. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think, I mean, and, and we were talking about it before, you know, they'll find any place, uh, boarding schools, sports teams. Well, churches. this is the way in which, you know, yes. Any, yeah. any situation in which children are put in the care of non parents <laughs> and kept away from the purview of their parents. So in, you know, yeah. Boy Scout troops, schools, churches, that kind of thing. Um, and in both cases, I think in both of our books, what we're, we're really describing is a culture that allowed for that, that permitted the sacrifice of children for the larger interest of the institution, which um, was happening in both of our cases. Erica, I kind of see a related um, question where people wanted me to discuss how Ormache reacted when confronted. Oh, and okay. I'll leave a lot of that to the book, but it kind of falls in with what you say is um, what we're talking about when you're dealing with a narcissist and a sociopath and my good yeah. buddy, Eric, who, who if he's still a pros- on the phone as a prosecutor, um, they can only give what they can give. So you're not going to get the mm-hmm. fall on your knees. You're not going to like, you know, I, I get really upset when I hurt people. It hurts me to hurt people, um, but they don't have that ability. So it was a little, um, I don't know. I think I still expected more than I got, but what I came away with was a pretty good understanding that I didn't have to worry about the children of Rome yeah, because he couldn't enter their homes the way he entered ours. So that was a that was probably and one of answers to Tim's concern is how do we make sure children are safe? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's an extraordinary. Oh, sorry, Tim, you go. You think about it. I mean, uh, I, I I believe that. Uh, um, I mean, I don't see him as a uh, obviously he's a disgusting monster, um, but uh, if you really think about how intelligent it is for a pedophile to find an organization with worldwide a lot of money uh, that can support. And you're basically uh, you know, God's messenger on earth yeah. to yeah. families that truly believe uh, that you are you are here uh, as you know a man of God. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I need know how to play the game. And what a what a setup! Uh, and there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't I don't think we're I don't even think we've scratched the surface. I'm sure. And uh, you know, again, you know, private schools like the church are disgorging more and more stories like this of you know 
children being abused by adults in a number. If you think of about ways. how he reacted when he saw Joan, can you imagine how he would react if he saw me? Yeah. He would have ran for his life, and for a good reason. Yeah. He does. Well, I mean, that is, it's an extraordinary scene and everyone should buy the book for that scene alone, which is when Joan goes and has this long conversation. I, it's chilling and it's fascinating and just chilling. I mean, he's a monster. Yeah. He does, has no idea. And then, you know, and it's such a useful <laughs> reminder, you know, that really, you know, the people who do this are just essentially broken people uh, with, you know, who don't function like the rest of us. Am I remembering this wrong from your book that you saw Henry at one point? Never seen. You've never saw him. Okay. I'm remembering something different. All right. Yeah. And you know, and, and as far as closure goes, I mean, you, you were, you helped yourself to a a measure of closure that I have never gotten. Um, You know, I have tried to, uh, my case was uh, this Boston Globe spotlight mm-hmm. team famous for doing the spotlight expose of the Catholic Church in the Boston area. Did similarly an expose on private schools, private um, prep schools and sexual abuse. And they did a number of articles. And the one that I was featured in was when the schools punish the victim. That was the angle of that. And it was me and a couple other people who had that situation. Um, And I thought surely I would hear from the school when that came out. Nothing. And then a group of alumni went and confronted in a letter, confronted the trustees of the school, asking for redress and acknowledgement. And the lawyers got involved. And there's a very mealy mouth letter. Uh, You know, there is a fund set up for, you know, psychiatric Mm -hmm. help for the victims, which, of course, you know, I've done my decades of therapy. You know, it's too late for me. Um, so, you know, I don't know that I'll ever, I've never heard from the teacher yeah. or the school. So uh, you didn't even get a letter with your name spelled wrong. <laughs> no, not even that, but I'm sure yeah. if I did, they would spell it wrong because everybody spells my name wrong. Yeah. Anyway, we've gone over time, so yeah. I'm going to wrap it up, but what a, what a privilege to meet both of you, to read this book and your story, um, Thank you so much to Elliott Bay Books for having this, hosting this evening. It was terrific, really. And may I put in my thanks to Erica too. And just, I've been telling all my friends and if you're on here, please buy Erica's book, especially from Elliott Bay Bookstore. It's a book company store. You will love it. Um, I wish, I think we could even talk longer, but I know we we, we, we all have lives and so does the bookstore. Everybody have a great evening. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Joan Knuckles Wilson is the author of The Book of Timothy, My Brother, the Devil, and Me. Erica Schickel is the author of The Big Hurt. Special thanks to Tim Knuckles. This program was presented on January 13th, 2022 by the Elliott Bay Book Company. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.